As we come to the uh, the book of Revelation now, there is a sense about it, and I don't know about you, but maybe you squeamed a little bit when we um, read about the great supper of God, when the birds will be called to gorge on the flesh of kings and uh, people great and small. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, um, somehow we, get, we gorge or we, we um, are revulsed a little bit by what Scripture says, but the stuff that we watch on TV and in mu- uh, movies is uh, way worse than what is described in Scripture. I don't know why I said that. But uh, uh, as we come to this particular text today, uh, one thing I, I want us to understand is that when you look at um, chapter 19 and 20, uh, I don't think always that our chapter divisions help us. And I think here that if there's any way that you could, say, print chapter 19 and 20 off and take out the chapter references and just read them, you would get a sense of a flow and a connection that has been divided by the insertion of those chapter divisions, which has resulted in the way that we have interpreted these chapters over the course of sort of the church history. You'll find that as I look at them over the next three weeks, that uh, today I'm going to actually end at verse seven or 16. Uh, Next week, I'm going to pick up at verse uh, uh, 17 of chapter 19 and go, I believe it is, to verse 9 of chapter 20 and then do the last part of chapter 20 in three weeks. I think that's a helpful way to look at this particular portion of Scripture. As we come to this text, too, um, maybe what has thought or what seemed improbable is now becoming a reality. And what seemed improbable was would we ever win this war? Would the church ever defeat the forces that are arrayed against it? We've had glimpses of the reality of this battle. It started in the battle of, or in the Garden of Eden, and after the uh, man and woman had sinned, um, Satan came and, and uh, uh, um, or sorry, God came into the garden and he uh, he uh, he pronounced the judgment on Adam and Eve and on the serpent. And on the serpent, he said, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring." And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we understand that all of church history, all of world history, has been a conflict between these two offsprings. We come to uh, the New Testament in the days of Jesus and we find that conflict reaches its sort of critical stage and when all the forces of hell were arrayed against our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to try and take him off task and off mission. But we understand that Jesus fully obeyed the Father, perfectly obeyed the Father. He offered up his life in the place of ours as a sacrifice for sin. He died on the cross that God accepted that sacrifice and in demonstration of that raised him from the dead and highly exalted him into heaven. And that was the victory over the dark powers of darkness. But it's a victory that is taking a while to actually be fully met and felt in the world in which we live. If you were here a while ago, we talked about how Satan uh, had been thrown out of heaven. At the exaltation of Christ, after Christ um, was raised from the dead, after 40 days, he was taken up to heaven. And there, there was a war in heaven. And remember, Satan was thrown out of heaven. Six times, it says, he was thrown out, thrown out, thrown out. No place in heaven for him any longer. He was thrown down to earth. We'll look at it in a couple weeks, how he's thrown out of earth into the lake of fire. But as he's here on earth, he is angry. And it says that uh, Revelation reminds us of what we know throughout the New Testament and throughout church history the last 2,000 years is that Satan now is waging war against the church. And not only is Satan waging war, 
but he's brought into his sort of leadership group, the beast from the sea, the beast from the land, and Babylon, the great prostitute. And they have thrown everything they have against the church. And we wonder, can we stand? We wonder, will the darkness ever be defeated? And we come to a passage like this and we can say with absolute and utter and complete confidence, yes. Because at the end of this, we find the beast and the false prophet thrown alive into the lake of fire. And a couple of weeks, we will see how Satan himself was cast into the lake of fire. We're reminded again and again, aren't we, that Revelation is a linear book. In fact, the Bible is a linear book. In fact, history is linear. It's not cyclical. It doesn't keep coming back on itself. There is a start and there is an end to history. And as we move through the book of Revelation, as we get now to chapters 17, 18, 19, and 20, we realize that things are rapidly pressuring up to the end of the last days in the return of Jesus Christ. And we get to Revelation 21 and 22, and we are ushered into the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, I can't wait to get to Revelation 21 and 22. But for the meantime, we need to be reminded that there is an end to history. And Revelation 17, 18, 19, and 20 are describing that end. We have it, um, uh, as, as I was saying before, in the book of Revelation too, one of the ways to understand the book of Revelation is to understand that it is a recapitulation of the same events over and over again. It's a look at the history, or it's a look at the last days, first from this perspective, then from that perspective. It's not meant to be understood as a linear understanding of how history progresses, but rather a layered, recapitulating, a new look at it from different angle way of looking at history. And so we've looked at history from the point of view of the seals, from the trumpets, from the, from the bowls. We've looked at it from the, uh, from the interludes, and we realize that they all is, uh, describe the same period of time with different rates of intensity. And now we're at the very end of that as we come to Revelation 18, 19, and 20. You notice here that systematically, we didn't read verse 20, but I've already let us know, systematically, God is dealing now in reverse order with all the forces of evil that are arrayed against the people of God and against the church. We had the dragon and we had the beast from the sea and the beast from the land and Babylon. In verse 17 or chapter 17 and 18, we see Babylon defeated. In chapter 19, now we will see the beast and the false prophet defeated. And then in chapter 20, we see the dragon defeated. And in the end, as Maggie prayed, Christ wins. The lamb conquers. And so this is a description now, the very end of that, Revelation 19, 11 to 16. It's a description of the return of Christ. It's a description of the day of the Lord. Those are the same events. It is the same thing being described, just different words, different languages, different concepts that are brought into this. So this particular portion of Scripture, 19, 11 to 16, is a description of the coming of Christ. And John begins by saying, Then I saw heaven opened. That in itself is just a wonderful place to stop and reflect for a little bit. He saw, he saw heaven opened and a horse coming, a white horse coming from heaven. Do you ever think about heaven? And if you do, what do you think about heaven? Do you think about heaven as being a place way, way far away, a place way, 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 way up there? Um, or do you think of heaven as a place that's all around us? 
uh, a place that is, that is accessible if, if just the thin veil that separates spiritual reality from physical reality was pulled away, we would be in heaven. And I think this is the image that we get through the book of Revelation and throughout all the Bible that heaven is not this far, far, far away place. It is a glorious place. It is a place where all of those who have died in Christ are right now. But it's a place that is only separated from us by a thin, thin veil. We get a description of this, and we've read this before, but it's helpful to be reminded of it. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 19, where, or, or verse 15, Elisha, the prophet, is being hounded by a certain king that wants to take his life. And he finds himself in a city, and in the morning, his servant gets up, and he goes out onto the wall, and he looks out, and he sees the army of this king surrounding the city. And he comes back to his master, and he says to him, Alas, my master, what are we going to do? He says, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of chariots and horses all around Elisha. In other words, God opened his eyes to see past material reality to spiritual reality and see the armies of heaven surrounding that city as well. And so in verse 1 of chapter 4, John begins by saying, and I saw a door opened into heaven and I saw a throne. And the beautiful thing is you read to verse 2, it says, and the throne was occupied. Here we have John seeing heaven open and he sees a great right horse and there's a rider on the horse. It's just for me, this beautiful picture that the throne is occupied and this conquering horse is occupied. And it's occupied, the throne, by God himself. And the horse is occupied by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's an incredible reality that this universe is directed and it is guided and it is led by a throne and by a rider on a great white horse. John also uses this word, behold. It's a beautiful word. We don't use it in language, in English language much. There might have been a day when they used it, but it's used 26 times in the book of Revelation. It's used throughout the Bible, actually. But it's a, it's a word that if we were to use it today, and uh, uh, sort of if we were driving somewhere and all of a sudden we saw something remarkable or something we wanted to bring to the attention of somebody in the car, we'd go, look at that! And everyone would turn around and they'd look at it. Or if you're, if you're reading something and it really catches your imagination, you might say, you got to read this. It's like, stop, look, consider, think about this. And so this is a, a word that dots the book of Revelation, and it's meant to stop us in our tracks, to look at something, to feel something, or to think about something. The first time it's used in the book of Revelation, it's used in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Some of you might know what it is. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. He's coming back. And then it's used the last time in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. And there Jesus speaks these words. Behold, I'm coming soon. Encapsulating the whole book of Revelation is this vision of the return of Jesus Christ, our conquering king. And so John has a vision in heaven. And this time he says, behold, a white horse. Do you know that return of Jesus Christ is the blessed hope of the church? 
Is this something you think about? Is this something that fills your mind on a day-to-day basis? Did you think about it this last week? You know, Titus tells us that the return of Jesus Christ is the blessed hope of the church. We have a lot of things that we hope in. Many of those will never come to pass, or our hopes will be dashed, or they will fail. This hope, this hope in the return of Christ will be realized. It is the blessed hope of the church. His coming is described in, in various, various ways in, in the scripture. I just read from uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. And we think, okay, well, that's not how I thought he was going to come, but uh, that sounds pretty good to me. He's coming with the clouds. Clouds are uh, a representative of the authority of God, the power of God. He rides on the clouds. So, okay, he's coming in the clouds. But then maybe you're reading a little bit later and you read in Matthew chapter uh, 25, well, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And you think, well, what is it? Is he coming with the clouds or is he coming with his angels? And then you read it again in, in Acts chapter 1 verse 11. And thereafter Jesus had been walking with his uh, disciples um, for 40 days. All of a sudden he's up on a mountain and all of a sudden he just disappears into heaven. And the angels there are saying to the men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him going into heaven. And so we say, well, is it this sort of quiet, meek, uneventful return of Christ? And then you have Paul who describes it. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And we think, I'm really messed up now. And then John says, behold, he's coming on the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierce him. All the tribes of the earth will account for him. And then Jesus says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. And we think, what is it? It's all of them. This is such a massive mammoth event. And it is perceived by so many people in different ways. It's perceived by by followers of the beast one way. It's perceived by followers of Christ another way. There is the, the, the truth to the fact that he's going to come with angels. There's truth to the fact that he's coming on the clouds. There's truth to the fact that there's a trumpet sound. All of these are trying to help us wrap our heads around this extraordinary event when Jesus Christ returns. Only one coming, but described in so many different ways. Secondly, as we look through the words of the New Testament that are used to describe the coming of the Lord, and uh, I won't give you all of these references. They're actually in the notes for the growth group, and I think this is most of them, but I just want to touch on them. Uh, The visible return of Christ, the coming of the Lord, is spoken of in at least four different ways and with four different words in the New Testament. There's two words that are used of the coming of Christ, and you read it, and he says, he will come or he is coming again. One of those words is simply the word which means to come. And that's the word that, that uh, I read from uh, in Revelation 1, uh, 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. That word is used about three, four times in the New Testament to describe the coming of Christ. Another word that you'll find used to refer to the coming of Christ and translated the coming of Christ is the parousia of Christ. Some of you might be familiar with that word. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. It will be this seeable, this knowable, this nobody can miss it return of Christ. In another place it says that Christ is accompanied in his coming, the parousia, with all of the saints. 
In another place, even though we don't know the exact hour or the day of his coming, Paul tells us that he will not come, same word, until the man of lawlessness first appears. So we have two words that describe his coming, and it describes it from all different angles. We have a, another word, which is the word from which we get epiphany from. I had an epiphany. I had a, uh, something appeared to me. The coming of Jesus is described in many places as the epiphany of Jesus or the appearing of Jesus. Same event, different words. And it says this in, in, uh, uh, in, in um, uh, the Hebrew that the, or in, in Greek, that the followers of the Lamb are characterized as those who have loved his appearing. If you are waiting for the return of Christ, the coming of Christ, you are loving his appearing. Same event, different word to describe it. He will appear. Heaven will be peeled back or the veil will be peeled back and Christ will appear. We keep his commandments and we are do it unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of Christ. At that day, we will be made perfect. Until then, we keep the commands. Christ is going to appear one day. It's the blessed hope of the church, the appearing of Christ. And then there's a fourth word that's used to describe this same event, the apocalypse of Christ, the revelation of Christ, the revealing of Christ in all his glory and might and power. Paul reminds the Corinthian church that they have been given so many gifts and they are to use those gifts as they wait for the revelation of Christ. What's the revelation of Christ? It's the appearing of Christ. What's the appearing of Christ? It's the coming of Christ. Different words, same event. Paul says that there's a fullness of grace that we will receive at the revelation of Christ. Again, when Christ comes back, when Christ returns, we will receive the fullness of grace. We will be transformed inside and out, body and soul, made perfect at the revelation of Christ. And so these are all words that describe the same event, a single return of Christ, which is here described again in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 following. And I simply have titled this section, Behold, our coming warrior king. I'd love to take a few moments and just ask you to picture Christ in your imaginations, Jesus, and tell me what you see. What comes to your mind as you think of Jesus? Jesus, your name is power. As we sung that song, Jesus, your name is power, what were you thinking of? How, how did you image Jesus? How did you picture Jesus? I'm not asking you to break the second commandment. I'm just saying, what sort of floods your mind? My sense would be, and I think this is a, something where the church has maybe let us down, my sense would be that the vast majority of your thoughts would be taken from the Gospels. That what you would picture was Jesus, maybe he came as an infant and, and then he, he lived on this earth and he walked with people, he talked with people. Yeah, he had great power, he, he prayed and people were healed. He spoke and water was turned to wine. He lived this perfect life. He was like us in every way. He had flesh and blood like I have. He walked on this earth. Our, our image of Christ, our picture of Christ is Christ as the man. Christ as the one who walked on the earth. Christ as the one who died on the cross, Christ as the one who was raised to heaven. But I think for so many of us, that's where our picture of Christ ends. It ends with the Gospels. 
I want us to be reminded again, as the book of Revelation does over and over again, to fill out that picture with an understanding of the exalted, reigning, powerful, conquering Christ, our warrior king. And in fact, the whole book of Revelation, and I encourage you to go back through the book of Revelation, because it is, after all, what? A revelation of who? Of Jesus Christ. And you read the book of Revelation and you get an entirely different picture than the picture of Christ you get from the Gospels. You get a picture in Revelation of, as I said, the exalted reigning Christ who reigns over his church, who reigns over this world, who is in control of this universe, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and nobody can stand against him. We get just a picture, and, and I don't have time. I have them all listed here, and I so want to go through every reference to Christ that we've come across already in the book of Revelation. But you on your own can say, go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 to 18, and read there this picture of Christ, white hair, hair of white as wool, eyes of fire, feet of bronze, this gold belt around his waist, whose voice is the sound of many thunders and water. Or you can go to Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and there you see the exalted reigning Christ on earth amidst his church, walking amongst his churches saying, I know where you live, I know what you face, I know how you suffer, but you can conquer and if you conquer, I will give you this, this, or this. You see Christ in Revelation chapter 5 when heaven is, is weeping which is uh, just bizarre to me, but heaven is weeping as one sits on the throne and in his scroll is a right hand and it's weeping, or John is weeping at least, because nobody is able to go and take the scroll. And who comes and takes the scroll? The Lamb, Jesus Christ. And what's in that scroll? All the plans and purposes of God for his church, for mankind, for the world. And who is able to accomplish those purposes or carry those purposes out? Jesus Christ, our warrior king. Just, it goes on and on through the book of Revelation. How Christ is the object of worship and adoration. How Christ is the one with power. How he's got the name king of kings and lord of lords. And because of that name, he is able to defeat the beast and the ten kings that are arrayed against him. Loved ones, he is our hope. He is our king. He is our salvation. Not Donald Trump, not Justin Trudeau, not Andrea Merkel, not any rich person in this world, not any leader in this world. They are nothing compared to Jesus Christ, our King. Yeah. <laughs> hallelujah. And I don't know who you're thinking of, <laughs> but hallelujah for that. He is our hope. And so in verses 11 to 16, in what is undoubtedly vivid and highly symbolic language, we have a picture of Jesus in his second coming. And all of the 13 descriptive phrases are designed to tell us something about who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he will do for his people. Let these verses expand your vision of Jesus Christ. It begins with a white horse. White is a symbol of purity. But a white horse is a symbol of victory. 
And there's a lot going on here because some say, well, is, is Christ reigning now or is he coming to the end? I think it's both. Yes, he's reigning now. He's bringing all nations under submission uh, to him. But he's also coming at the end in final conquest. And he's coming on a white horse. Well, a white horse was something that an emperor who had gone out and fought a bunch of battles, and if it had been a particular successful campaign, he would want to have a victory ride march through Rome, and so he would request if he could ride on a white horse because a white horse was a symbol of victory. And so here we have this symbol of a white horse, a symbol of victory, of conquest, and Christ riding this white horse. Sitting on the horse is one called faithful and true. Is that what you think of Jesus when you think of him? Faithful and true. Faithful to what? Faithful in keeping his promises. Faithful in fulfilling his warnings. Faithful in witnessing to God or from God to us. Faithful through persecution and suffering to never waver, never give in, never give up. To trust his father even to death. Faithful to the end. Faithful to us, even though we are unfaithful. He is the faithful one. Never, ever doubt that Jesus Christ will abandon you for another. Never doubt that Jesus will not fulfill every single promise he has made. Never doubt that Jesus will never fulfill every warning he has uttered. He is faithful, but he's also true. True as opposed to fake. True in the sense of reliable and genuine. True in the sense that there is no deceit, no error in him. True in the fact that he always has spoken truth. True in the fact that he has never compromised the truth. True in the fact that you can trust everything that he says. There is nobody else in this world, in this universe, apart from the Godhead, that you can trust to be true. On this white horse of victory rides one who is called faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. What a breath of fresh air. How many wars are carried out in pride, in arrogance, in sinfulness? But in Christ, there is no enticement through a bribe. In Christ, there is no extortion. In Christ, there is no desire for personal gain. Christ wages war and judges with perfect righteousness. Isaiah writes, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. In the New Testament it says, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Isn't that what we long for? Perfect equity, fairness, truth to be revealed he will judge and make war in righteousness think about that next time you suffer injustice think about that next time things go sideways in a contract that you entered into put your confidence and trust in Jesus Christ who in righteousness judges and wages war his eyes are like flames of fire. We understand this is not literal, don't we? It's not like you look at Christ and it's like a torch burning out of his face. And you see people try and color it like that, and it's bizarre. The point is, surely, 
a way of describing the penetrating gaze of Christ. He doesn't just look at me. He looks through me. I can't hide anything from me. This is what I love about Christ. I, I, th I think there's not a person here who doesn't want to keep some things from other people because we think, well, if they know them, what will they think about me? If they know them, how will they talk about me? If they know them, will they stay married to me? Christ has eyes of fire, sees right through us exhaustively. And in verse 5 of chapter 1, it says he loves us. But it's also on the side of judgment, isn't it, that Christ will be able to judge with perfectness because there is nothing hidden from his gaze. Think about that the next time you suffer injustice. You might not understand everything. You might not see everything. But you might say, Christ, I know you see this with your flames of fire or your eyes of fire, and I trust you to vindicate me and to bring justice into this situation. On his head are many diadems. I don't know if you think about Christ this way when you sing about him, when you worship him, when you talk to him throughout your day. This is, I'm sure, a counter to the images of the dragon and the beast. The dragon has seven images or crowns on his head. The beast has ten crowns on his head. Crowns are a symbol of authority. They are a symbol of sovereignty. This is a way of speaking about their control over certain kings and kingdoms. Well, Christ has many crowns, so many crowns that nobody can count them, so many crowns that nobody can number them. Crown him with many crowns, our lamb upon the throne. Every square inch of this universe is under his sovereign control and reign. A great Dutch theologian wrote, there is not a square inch in all the universe over which he does not say, mine. Mine. It is all his. He reigns over it all perfectly, sovereignly, according to his will. A name nobody knows. At first glance, that might seem a little strange because we've been reading a couple of his names, faithful and true. We're going to read another of his names, Word of God. You understand some of the other names of Jesus. Wonderful, Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, our Shepherd, Bright Morning Star. And yet here we read that there is a name which only he knows himself. There's a lot of things, I think, that are going on here. Sometimes being able to use somebody's name is to have a little bit of power over them. If I was shopping in thrifties and, and you walked down and you, you sort of uh, saw me from a distance, um, chances are if I heard you, you could say, hey, Paul, and you'd stop me and I'd turn around and I'd respond if it was a good day. <laughs> if it was a bad day, I might just frown. I don't know. But there's a certain amount of power you have when you know somebody's name. It's not always a bad thing. It can be a good thing, but certainly you have a certain amount of power when you know somebody's name. Names also describe us. And so um, some of you have three or four names. Um, and every one of those names means something. And they connect you with a family tree, maybe. They connect you with an uncle or with a grandfather, with a grandmother. They're, they're names. Some of you have nicknames. And those nicknames you, you got in a certain situation. And they fill out a little bit of who you are. I won't tell you my nicknames. Um, but uh, they describe a little bit about us. 
Well, I think what this is saying about Jesus is there are aspects of Jesus that we will never know. There is a depth to his character, a depth to his person that can never be known by us because he is God. Only he himself knows the fullness of his character, the fullness of his glory, the fullness of who he is. I think this is a way of saying he is God. There's a name which only he himself knows. In fact, one day it says God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. He's also described as clothed in a robe dipped in blood. I don't think that this is referring to the blood that he shed on our behalf. I think this is a reference to the fact that he is God's warrior, that he is our king, and that he has defeated the enemies of God. Isaiah writes, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. I think this is the blood of his enemies. This is demonstrating or pronouncing his defeat over all those who worship the beast and rally against him at the end. Named the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was God, as we heard earlier. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Jesus spoke, and this world came into existence. Jesus maintains this world by the power of his word. Jesus will slay the lawless one by a breath of his mouth. Is that the Jesus you pray to? Jesus, help me. Jesus, deliver me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, provide for me. And not only does he speak with power, but he speaks with clarity. He perfectly reveals the Father to us. Everything that the Father told him to say, he has told to us and communicated to us. He is the Word of God. He speaks and the whole earth trembles. What power, what authority, what might. He says he's accompanied by the armies of heaven. It is true, I read a little bit earlier, that when Christ comes back, he's going to be accompanied by the angels. But the Bible also says in three or four different places that he's going to be accompanied by the saints. With the saints. This is described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17. When Christ comes back, he will bring with him those who are in heaven. And those of us who are alive will be caught up together to meet him in the air. And we'll be brought down to the earth. And we will be part of this incredible army which Christ leads to bring about the final defeat of Satan. Revelation 7.14, it says that he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and he will conquer the beast, and with him are those who are called, chosen, and faithful. We looked at a couple of weeks that those who are characterized as the bride of Christ are described in wearing pure linen, bright and pure. I think this is describing the people of God that will be in the army of Christ, led by our general Christ. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Yeah, that's not literal. There's not steel coming out of the mouth of Christ, but 
what it is saying is that his word is a penetrating, revealing, powerful word. Isaiah says he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. It's just speaking about the power of his word. In another place, in the next one, it says he rules all the nations with a rod of our. Right now, Christ is ruling this earth. It says that in the book of Revelation at the, at the very beginning that uh, he rules over all the nations. Right now, Christ is reigning and ruling. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Twelfth, you will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Christ carries out the judgment of God and the justice of God with God's full authority. Finally, he has on his robe and a thigh name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Is this your Jesus? Is this your Christ? If you were witnessing to somebody and they said to you, would you tell me who Jesus is? Would this be part of your description and your explanation to them? Should be. As you're praying to Jesus, as you're talking with Jesus, as you're, as you're, as you're walking with him, is this part of what fills your mind as you are thinking of him? This is the exalted reigning Christ of Scripture. For those of you who don't know Christ today, I've introduced him to you. Maybe it's not the introduction that you were hoping for. Maybe this is not what comes to your mind when you have used his name or you have heard others use his name. But this is the Jesus you will have to face and deal with on the last day when he returns. Right now he is against you. But he can be for you if you put your trust in him. He is the only person worthy of your hope. He's the only person worthy of your trust. Will you not consider putting your hope in this Jesus today? For those of you who are loved by him already, this is your savior. This is your brother. This is your reigning king. This is our blessed hope, the one who will come from heaven riding on a white horse. Remember, heaven is not a faraway place. It's very close at hand, and any moment he can break through. At any moment, God can peel back that thin veil that separates material reality from spiritual reality and say, now is the time. He is your hope, your sure and certain hope. It's not a vulnerable infant that we often think of at Christmas, which he was, but he is our divine warrior king, sovereign over this whole universe. He alone is worthy of honor and glory, power and might. Put your hope in him again and worship him alone.